Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. Okay, so uh, welcome to all my listeners and welcome to, I have uh, three ladies with me today uh, who I'll be interviewing or asking, uh, they'll be asking some questions. These ladies had listened to or, or watched together. I gather you guys got together to do this. We watched separately, but we met together after, yeah. Okay, you met together. Okay, that's great. So you watched it at your own house, a video series that I did a few years ago called Homeschooling with Joy. And so I will um, start with a prayer, and then I'll introduce these lovely gals, and we will, uh, and then we can sort of get to our questions, but I'll explain a little bit about the, the homeschool series for any listeners who haven't heard of it. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just ask for your guidance in our conversation. We just ask that uh, we can be conduits of grace, conduits of clarity for, uh, for on your behalf, for all the moms who might have similar questions, who might have the same questions in their homeschool journeys. And we just ask that our conversation be blessed by you and be blessed by our Holy Mother. And we just um, ask you to be with us and be part of this conversation today. In Jesus' name we pray. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Teresa, do you mind if we start by, with you? Because you were my point of contact here. If you want to tell us the age of your kids and, and um, you know, how long you've been homeschooling for, your, a little bit about your life. Okay. I am, I was homeschooled myself as well as my husband. So I feel like I've been Fabulous. for life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have nine children. Our nice. oldest is 26. And our youngest is... Four. Okay, uh, beautiful. Yeah, so I have four graduated and four in school and one who hasn't even started. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. You're doing it all. Yes, yeah. you're doing it all. Yep. Beautiful. And I, we've homeschooled them from the beginning. So, What about you, Leah? I have been homeschooling my kids from the beginning. Um, I was homeschooled from seventh grade myself. And I have seven children. Cool. Um, five girls, two boys, boys of the bookends, my oldest and my youngest, and they range in age from 19 down to five years old. And Margaret, yeah, so you are you also were, uh, you were homeschooled yourself? Yes, I was homeschooled okay. uh, right from the beginning, and I think I always knew I would homeschool my kids, <laughs> and when right. it came down to actually starting, it was a little nerve-wracking. But we have started, and so our oldest is seven, he's seventh grade, so we're pretty nice. good with this. And, and you have how many? Three children. So oldest okay. is seven, and then we have an almost five-year-old and an almost two-year-old. Okay. Great. That's beautiful. Uh, so welcome, ladies. I'll, I'll tell these guys a little bit about um, about the series, the listeners about the series. So about six or seven years ago, uh, I had been doing a, a full-day homeschool workshop for a long time, for probably 20 years or 25 years, because right from the first few years of homeschooling, people started asking me questions. Well, why is it working so well? Why aren't you getting pushback? Why are you, you know, why is it kind of really working for you? Because we're struggling with this. And I met a lot of people like that. And then I ended up having this mom say, would you kind of put on a bit of a workshop for us? And when I actually started doing the uh, sort of writing down my notes for the workshop, so how was I going to present this material? I realized I needed a kind of a full day to kind of give people a snapshot of what our life is like, how we do things. First of all, kind of educational philosophy. And then what do we do when when our kids are, what do we do all together as a family? What do we do one-on-one? -on -one? How does the rhythm of the day look? And all of that. And I thought this is kind of kind of a full day workshop. So from that sort of initial meeting with moms, just really informally, a bunch of moms in our homeschool group, I developed a workshop because I realized that this is something that, that uh, most people want. They want homeschooling to be joyful and cozy and all of that but they're not quite sure how to make that roll out, right? Because our reference point for us is usually school. 
and you know, not you guys, just <laughs> your second gen. It was it seemed like an important thing to do at the time. So this is you know going back a lot of years now. So that first workshop was probably in like ninety six or ninety seven, something like that. So then I developed the workshop and I ended up being asked to do it all over the place. I would go to, you know, I was traveling quite a bit to do this workshop. So I could only do it in a limited way because I had all my kids at home. I might do it for two, three times a year uh, because I would have to go somewhere to do it. Eventually, I thought, you know, I can't be in all the places that I am being asked to do this workshop. So maybe I should just hire somebody to video it and, and make it a video product. And then it's a lot less expensive for people. So they don't have to pay my traveling, you know, that kind of stuff. So I did this video workshop. I hired actually a wedding videographer. She was fantastic. Just the quality of her video was so lovely. Uh, she videoed it. I had it as a for sale as a product for a few years. And then I was just at the point of thinking, I'm going to break this down into little sort of 20 minute sections and put it all up on YouTube. It's kind of paid for itself and and make it available to people. Then COVID happened. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put it up as a free workshop because so many new homeschoolers are happening with COVID. So let's just let's just do that. So I did that. And then it kind of exploded at that point um, in terms of the exposure that it got. Then I put it on audio on my podcast, published them as podcast episodes because a lot of people just seem to prefer podcasts than than watching. So, So that's what you guys watched separately and then got together and discussed the various episodes. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And then you Mm -hmm. sent me some great questions. Do you want to start with the ones that you sent me? Because, uh, you know, I can see if my A, my answers were satisfactory. (laughs) And B, you know, um, uh, whether or not they were helpful for you. Uh, We would love to start with those, right, guys? Yes. Sounds great. You're just up front. Your answers were satisfactory. Oh, good. Okay. This is bonus. Very satisfactory. (laughs) So we had Why Must We Homeschool with Joy? Okay. And so can you read off? Do you remember what I wrote you? I can pull it up on my email. Is it in front of you? It's I can pull it up too, but I don't have it in front of me. I did did write the questions down, but I didn't write down your entire response. You wrote it down? Oh, you didn't write it down. Yes, that would be silly if you have it in the email. If you want to pull it up and then I can sort of elaborate on whatever I told you, but I should have uh, thought to pull that up Um, because I actually had an opportunity to sort of sit and you know, ruminate over my answers and, you know, correct my spelling and that sort of thing. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, one you're moment. welcome. We can see you. You can see me now. It's a little bit further back. One moment. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question that I asked, why must we homeschool with joy? You decided to answer that last. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so then my second question was, how do you define joy? How do you define joy? Is- And this was your answer. Do you want me to read it? Sure. Father Mike Schmitz defines joy as an abiding sense of well-being. I feel that joy is the human emotion, manifestation of beauty, to choose to seek living and contentment and peace and see the good. Right. So I think that that for me, joy is like the opposite of angst. So when we can feel feel at peace with what is happening around us and at peace with. So I think to me, in my brain, joy and peace are really closely related to each other because you can't be joyful if you're not peaceful. And so those moments of angst, we have to do whatever we can to really, uh, to really combat those moments of angst because I think not that we can't be, have all the range of emotions. We can be sad. We can be angry. We can be all those things, but but angstiness is definitely from the devil, right? That he he wants us to not have peace. And so we have to be really, really aware of that. And one of, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I, I just recently lost my dad to suicide um, in April. So I had yes. shared that with a little brief episode with my listeners. Of course, this has been in terms of peace. This has been one of the biggest challenges of that I've ever faced. I think all the years of practice, you know, practicing, maintaining a joyful attitude, which is so related to peace, has really put me in good stead, because I cannot in my wildest dreams imagine it's, it's, you know, it's a hard thing to go through. It's a hard thing. Yeah. And yet, 
I couldn't, whenever I felt that angst bubbling up in me, Father Jacques Philippe has just been such an incredible grace to me. I started reading for the third time as soon as my dad passed, you know, I started reading Searching for and Maintaining Peace. And it spoke to me in ways, it was a profound book years ago, but it spoke right. to me in ways that I can't even describe. And I remember typing out big passages of it and sending them to my kids and just saying, you know, he wants me, my soul to be still so that I can reflect his beauty to others. You know, all those years of practice has really helped me do that. And there's been times where I said to my husband, you know what? I can't even think about it. I just need to lean in. I just need to lean in and know that Jesus has his arms around me. In some ways, like this is a huge tragic ordeal, but in some ways it's harder to to raise your kids and be going through that angst and lack of peace every single day of your life. And so it's just virtue. It's just the practice of virtue right? That we have to constantly say, okay, you know, why is it I'm getting upset about all this juice? Why is it on the floor? Why is it I'm getting upset about, uh, you know, my kid who's giving me, you know, flack about not doing their math, finding, finding a joyful attitude about that is, yeah, hmm, yeah, math is hard today. So let's do something different, right? Or, or whatever, however we choose to handle that, you know, or we're going to plow through it, but you know, we're going to keep a joyful attitude because our angst doesn't help anybody. And it really destroys our um, ability to seek joy and seek peace or even just to do the math or do the math nobody gains if we lose our peace mm-hmm. math isn't happening so yeah <laughs> it was very interesting when we were um talking about this and and talking about defining joy when the three of us were together because we pulled out the catechism and we pulled out you know whatever resources Teresa had <laughs> on her shelf right there right. And, and whatever and so it was really nice we wanted to, you know, part of part of restudying something or learning about something, especially when it's presented by somebody else like you, is needing to know your definition of it. And so we yeah. were so happy when when you emailed back that lovely email with with all yeah. of your information. And I I think that um, you know really it's something that it should have been the first episode in in you know in my podcast right it should have been one of those things so i'm really g- grateful that we're addressing it now because i think sometimes you know you do need to define the terms what does this actually mean what am i seeking what am i because i remember one time a mom saying to me so so what you're saying to me is is it's like a sin to yell at my kids or it's i said well no she she really misunderstood what i was saying that we're seeking joy. It's not, you're going to have moments of angst. Of course you are. And the point is not just to not yell at my kids or not punish my kids or not whatever. The point is to seek Christ, really. And so if we, we could just slap a smile on our face and pretend we're not feel, you know, we're not, we're, we're not having a lack of peace, but that's not, you're not actually gaining in the spiritual life from doing that. Right. So it's, it's a great topic. Yeah, a lot of what we had talked about and come up with was that there always seemed to be a connection with suffering, actually, um, when talking about joy. And and it, it is that, like you said, letting God be in charge, I guess, and mm-hmm. then being at peace, at peace you know, with it. Mm-hmm, for yeah. sure. Well, obviously, the word to choose as well, because, uh, right, it's something you actually choose versus... Yeah, it's not just a happy accident. Yeah. 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 Reading Let Beauty Speak for our book club. And that when his second chapter, he has, he says, there's no lasting joy without interior freedom, which speaks to the right. choosing part. Yeah. Interior freedom. <laughs> Who's that book by? I haven't read that. Uh, Jimmy Mitchell. It's fairly new. I think okay. uh, Ignatius Press uh, publishes it. Okay, I just read a book on beauty by David Clayton. And then I interviewed him. Well, didn't just read it It was a year, year and a half ago. That was that was really profound. And a a couple of years ago, I was trying to sort of put into words joy and, and what it means. And, and that's, I came up with that phrase the human manifestation of beauty, the human emotion manifestation of beauty, because I thought, okay, we're so attracted to joyful people, right? We want to be them, right? We want to be around them. We want to spend time with them. We want to be them. And the people who have exuded joy in my life, that's what I wanted to model myself after. Doesn't Jonathan Rumi in the, have you guys watched The Chosen? I have not. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Highly recommended. Jonathan Rumi exudes joy in a way that you can absolutely imagine Christ exuding joy. And sometimes it, it, 
it looks different. But he's so he was such a brilliant choice for that role because he's so in all in all of Joy's different moods. Because sometimes Joy is quiet, sometimes Joy is exuberant, sometimes Joy is, and he's all those things. And it's oh, it's oh. it's an amazing thing to watch because you just want to be Jonathan Rumi. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Okay, so this is the next question: Is is it the same thing as happiness? Yeah, I mean, I. I, do you want to read my answer? I, I don't think it is. I think they're related, but I don't think it is. But if you want to read whatever, you know, okay. nice cohesive answer I gave you guys first. <laughs> In my vocabulary, happiness is a feeling. Joy is an attitude. For example, a clean house makes me happy. Joy finds the happiness regardless of the state of the house. So joy is not sought, nor does it wash over us like happiness. It is cultivated and chosen. It is not to be grasped at, but comes in the letting go. Yeah. Yeah. And happiness. I mean, I think that person who is joyful is, you know, going to describe themselves as happy. But I think that happiness is something kind of in a sense that happens to you. It's an experience that you have, uh, you know, and again, it's it could be semantics. Somebody might might define happiness the exact same way I define define joy, you know, but to sort of distinguish what is because I think all of us, and let's talk secular for a moment, but I think all of us are seeking happiness. We want happiness when really seeking joy is what we want, because what the secular world is doing is, is trying to have happy experiences. Yes. And so if I do this thing, it will make me happy. You know, if I buy this thing, it will make me happy. Um, have you guys ever listened to Father Spitzer? Spitzer. You know, Father Spitzer? Mm -hmm. Okay. He talks about the four levels of happiness. Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. that really he's defining. We went to a talk that he did years and years ago on the four levels of happiness. And so he de he describes, first of all, the first level of happiness is that plate of linguine that's put down in front of you. And you, it's just, oh, you're so excited about having it and you're so excited about eating it and it tastes so good. Yeah. And, and, you know, not very long after that linguine isn't there, you are longing for it again right? Maybe it's two hours later, maybe it's the next day, maybe it's the next week, but but it's a momentary happiness that you kind of want to long to get back to. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, I just listened to his audiobook, uh, Surprised by Joy, which is his conversion story. He talks about that the pang of seeking happiness, because he really spends his whole life seeking the experience of happiness so deep that it gives you a pang, right? Hmm. Have you guys read mm -hmm. that book? That is on the book list. It's on our book list, actually. Yeah, for, oh, for it would make book a great club. book study. It's just, yeah. oh, it's stellar. And I, I'm kind of late to the party on C.S. Lewis. I read his children's books, but you know, it's only now that I'm going. I'm just, I'm just kind of addicted, right? I, I keep just one book after another. Uh, but surprised by joy was so profound because you can see, and you, you, as a as, as a Catholic, you keep wanting to say to him. Oh, but if you just understood the joy and the suffering go together <laughs> and that pain is because something was so beautiful, it kind of made you think, I want to be like this all the time, right? I want to feel like this all the time. And so you only have that in Christ. And as he, he just describes it so, so beautifully, right? So that was his quest was kind of seeking happiness. And I think that the world is, is, we're really geared for that, you know, and, and that we, we seek happiness in things, experiences, um, you know, all those things, but we're, what we're really seeking is that deep, deep, you know, happiness or joy that comes from only come really comes from life in Christ. Right. Yeah. Back to St. Augustine, right? Our hearts yeah. are restless till they rest oh. in you. <laughs> That's a quote that makes me cry. And I'm so I'm getting teary. So <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> because we were all restless hearts at some point, right? And maybe That's you guys true. weren't because you Absolutely. were all raised in wonderful uh, and you never had that. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> but uh we we pretty much anyone you ever meet, it's a rare person that you think, oh no, I've just kind of a happy Catholic my whole life, and um, you know, because even when we're raised well, we're raised with the faith, we have to go through our trial to come back to it. You know, I was raised yeah. in an agnostic home, so it was a, such a big experience for me to experience Christ. Yeah, yeah. So the last part of that is it's something you know, is it the same thing as happiness? The thing that just kind of gets me at the end but it comes in the letting go you know so it's something that you need to choose but yet it comes in the letting go i mean that's mm -hmm. difficult yeah yeah unless you yeah. unless you live it 
And again, you know, like with this situation with my dad, I mean, I've had lots of situations where I've had to kind of let go, but there have been smaller, you know, death is an interesting thing because um, you're forced to let go, right? So that's why, you know, I was saying like sometimes the letting go of the day to day, sometimes we never learn to do that. So we spend our whole life not letting go. And then our children grow up and suddenly we think, why was I so wound up about that? And, you know, for us, you know, when we have big families, that ha- you know we can see that progression happening from the oldest to the youngest even it's like with the oldest you know why did i get so wound up because they outgrew that thing they outgrew that phase they they sassed me but you know it was okay we we got through it and we you know we love each other and we came out the other end or whatever you know experience we have of frustration with our kids which is constant and daily that sometimes we never let go with death you have to let go people can process that differently and depending on the, the nature of death. So death, you hit a wall, you have to let go. Um, and sometimes we can do that in unhealthy ways, or we can hang on to um, bitterment or resent, bitter, bitterness or resentment or whatever. But but ultimately, we have to face the fact that the person is gone, right? Or that the child has grown up, you know, and some, some parents keep at the chil- children when they're grown up, even they keep sort of wanting them to be something that they're not. And death ha- is different. So so in you know with the nature of my dad's death, there's a two phases of letting go. First of all, my dad's died; he's let, letting go. But I have to let go of needing to know why, because I'm never going to know. I can't know. It's not knowable. The same way when we lose a parent or or you know we lose a someone we love, that we can't know why God chose this moment. You know we can't know why. There's a huge letting go because simply again they spend their whole life trying to understand why that moment happened. And so a lot of people end up angry at God. Mm-hmm. So I think that the the lesson is, is in this for us is that the letting go of the little things in family life actually becomes the more important thing because sometimes we never learn it. And it is our life lesson. It is how we, it, it is how we become Christ-like, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard because it, it, you get into that habit of reacting to just whatever you talk about that in your workshop too, whatever is immediate, it's not necessarily important or it might be important, but either way you're just reacting to it as opposed to pausing to stop and just think for a moment, mm-hmm. how should I respond to this as opposed to just reacting to it? Cause a lot of times when you just react to it, you know, you're, you don't have joy cause you're just, it's an immediate response mm-hmm. as opposed to pausing to think of how should I respond to this? How, how is the best way to deal with this and, and the godly way to deal with it and to, to have joy because I'm going to be at peace with, with however this might go, but to stop, just pause and think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because every time we're reactive, we're actually building the habit of reactivity. Mm-hmm. And every time we're responsive and we're gentle, we're building the habit of gentle. So it's not like, oh, I was reactive that time. You know, we're we're building our, our resources. And it doesn't mean, you know, of course we're going to be reactive sometimes. We're, you know, we're always we're 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 fallen humans. But the more we are responsive and tender, the more we build the habit of that, the more we are reactive. Because it really, it's just a bad habit. Like any you know, any sin, any virtue, we, we, we build and we build a little at a time. And so that was really a helpful idea in the beginning for me is that, okay, every time I'm reactive, I'm actually kind of, I'm kind of building my, how to be reactive, you know, response rather than how to be tender response. Right. So that was, that was an important um, kind of lesson for me to, to recognize that I, that I was doing that. I think I sent this to you, Teresa, when, Maybe I didn't. I can't remember. On YouTube, Father Baron, Bishop Baron has a, a talk that he did on. It's called the seven deadly sins and their lively opposite lively virtues or something like that. So he spends about 10 minutes on each sin and its opposite virtue. It's so, so good. It's great. Great to watch with your kids. Right. Because it's really fuels a lot of discussion even fairly young kids, you have some good discussion with it. And he's so, he's such an engaging speaker, but the the section that he does on anger uh, is, is really profound. And he said, you know, when we're angry, we, we ang- anger picks up speed every time it's thrown back and forth gains, oh. right? Where if you just, if say, so say your kid says something 
mean or angry at you and you say, don't you talk to me like that, that they're going to hurl something back at you and it's going to be stronger. And there's a hurling goes back and forth until it kind of reaches a, uh, an apex. And then suddenly, you know, there's an explosion. And at the explosion is usually when we think, okay, this was way over the top. What was I doing? What were you doing? But that, you know, that can take a long time to, to reach the explosion point too. You can have a, you can ruin your whole day. And, and you all are nodding like, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. <laughs> they know so, what you're talking about. So yeah. he says, if we can just let the angry thing go past us, like it just fizzles out. Right. So if we just are unreactive and that doesn't mean we don't deal with it. We don't have to deal with it later that we can't say, you know, you're really angry a few minutes ago or an hour ago. And, and you don't talk about that. What I found over the years is the, 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 when I'm at the top of my game and I can let that go, that that the kid is the one to come back to me and say, I'm so sorry, mom, I really exploded on you. And then it's like, Whoa, all the angels in heaven singing because this child's conscience is growing, right? This is an, you know, as opposed to me saying, you need to apologize to me, right? I'm kind of trying to force them. What a beautiful moment of, of formation, of spiritual growth in the child when they come to you and say, I'm sorry I was sassy or I'm sorry I was mean or whatever. And we we so often don't let them do that, right? But that's a real growth. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. for us too, we do it too, obviously, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Is it a virtue to be cultivated or perhaps the result of virtue bravely cultivated? I sort of answered both as far as I remember. <laughs> you are just doing really good on your answers corresponding with what you're saying now. Okay. <laughs> I don't consider joy in and of itself a virtue, but so accurate, a virtue bravely or perhaps diligently, cheerfully, constantly practiced in small ways of an openness to letting the Holy Spirit be a part of every moment, decision, judgment, and reaction. I mean, I think it is it is virtuous to be joyful, but it is not, I don't think, in and of itself a virtue. Right. It's the practice of abandonment, really. Truly. So this was, I think, when we were trying to define it, uh, right. it was really hard to find a definition for it, uh, it not being listed anywhere that we thought it might be. Okay, I'll submit it to, you know, dictionary.com <laughs> or something, see what they pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> so then do you want to go back to the first question? Was that, that was the end of the questions, I believe, right? Um, why did you choose it? Which is actually quite interesting to me because, you know, uh, make joy normal, homeschooling with joy. I mean, it is a word you use over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> so why did um, I choose it? Right. Yep. And, as opposed uh, to a different word, I think. Yep, Sorry. Right. yep. As opposed to anything else, such as order, peace, simplicity, or holiness. And you said, perhaps this is the best question, because joy can exist where there isn't order, peace, simplicity, or holiness. It is a result of being okay with what's happening or who we are in this very moment in time. It seems to me that joy is the sum total of these things. Order and simplicity can exist without joy. Peace and holiness are joy's partners, mentors, mentees. Sometimes we come to understand and practice holiness before we understand joy. But the further down the path we go on either of these things, we will stumble over the other. You know, that's what I saw in my own path as I was I was seeking holiness. I had a, when I first became Catholic, I had kind of a misunderstanding of what holiness meant. You know, because I'm I'm very sanguine, you know, I'm very out there. I'm kind of loud and you know, sometimes overshare. And you know, you know, I I <laughs> I didn't see what I saw holy people behaving like was not that. I thought contemplative, quiet, prayerful, kind of um uh not me. Yeah. Right. And so I thought, well, I really hope God is merciful because I'm just not like that, but I'm trying really, really hard. But I was really joyful. And so what happens is that. Uh, again, when when you're joyful, people are drawn to that, right? They're drawn. And I think ultimately that's why people were drawn to to this workshop. And, you know, we're asking questions about why I was doing what I was doing. Like, how was it working? Well, I think what they saw was that I was joyful about it and they wanted that. So I think that it wasn't because, you know, there's lots of reasons why they might be attracted to it, but I think it was the joy that they were actually attracted to. And so how do I keep that? How do I maintain that? How do I how do I do that? When I sort of realized that that my growth and holiness had to include um, you know, my temperament, then I saw where the worlds collided, that if I could be um if I can be both joyful and really, really seeking God's will in my life, 
that that's my path to holiness because God has given me this. Why would he give me this and not want me to use it for his uh, greater glory, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, last question. I'm having a hard time finding that because I had to go find your phone number, which was a different email. I should be able to find it. I have it here. Oh, do you? Okay. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. You had read the Why Must We Homeschool with Joy, that last question, or are we going back to the top and asking the first question, which she was saving for the last question? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, I think so. I think we finished the questions. Yes. And we're going back. Okay. Yeah. So why must we homeschool with joy? And your answer is consider the alternative, homeschooling without joy. If God wants us to love him and be filled with his peace, what kind of example are we giving if we are joyless. We shouldn't just homeschool with joy, but accept all that is with joy, whether that be housework, hosting, discipline, eating a meal, juice on the floor, or any crisis you can imagine. But that is a journey. We have to start small. Also, for me, when I speak the word homeschooling, it's a direct translation of mothering or fathering. I homeschool. I raise my kids. It's the same thing. And finally, because our Lord desires this for us. And you listed a lot. I have all those scripture quotes. <laughs> I'll put those in the show notes of this because uh, that was, you know, fairly long answers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to ask you guys a question. Did that answer surprise you? No. Okay. But you just, did you feel like, uh, did you feel like you just needed it defined? Like, why does this matter? Why am I putting my energy into this? Or why you made it, you know, why you made it a priority versus, right. um, I don't know, anything like holy day. It's like we, a book that we had read, Teaching from Rest. And, you know, again, the question, why did you choose the word rest? It right. sounds like lazy homeschooling, but, you know, it really <laughs> isn't. Yeah, just maybe why you, why joy would be a priority, I guess. Right. It makes okay. sense when you say it, but it right. didn't strike me originally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because the the series that I did was for all intents and purposes, uh, secular, right? As were my, you know, early books that I wrote to kind of go with it because they were sort of like almost transcripts of the workshops. It was an opportunity for me to witness what my life is all about to anybody, you know, in the secular world. And so that was really where I started because I I think partly because I was a convert and I just wanted people to know what this is like. Like I was a pretty joyful, buoyant person before my conversion, but the the capacity for joy is just the, the closer we are to Christ, that capacity for joy just expands and expands, right? And I think that that's why, like, say, you know, Thomas Aquinas or St. Dominic, or, you know, when you hear the lives of these saints who did incredibly hard things and lived incredibly hard lives, but they're they're full of joy. And that's, that's the thing that attracts people to them, right? The sort of the theology or the religion is is secondary, right? The same as beauty, you know, beauty raises you up, right? That's the point of it and joy being that in my opinion the human manifestation of beauty it raises you up you want it you want you want to know where it comes from you want to understand its source that was uh what i don't know i i just felt like that was so important to take that to the secular world and really talk about joy without even in a sense like you know, I mentioned that I'm Catholic and I mentioned that we do the things I do, but it's not that was my method of evangelization. That was really important to me. And also, like, this is a a sort of an afterthought that came to me after I had recorded that workshop. But so, you know, um, have you guys, I wrote a book a few years ago called Revolution of Mercy. Do any of you have it or did you listen to it? Okay, I did it as a... I listened to some of it. Okay. In the last chapter, as I was writing that book, it really helped me. I write mostly to define my own thoughts and to clarify my own thoughts, right? And, you know, then I just, you know, make it into a book. <laughs> I'm going to take it or leave it. Uh, it helps me to sort sort out what I'm experiencing or what I'm, you know, whatever growth or lack of growth I'm experiencing. And when I was writing that book, it came to me that... that when we get married, 
what we know as Catholics, what we know is that uh, marriage is uh, is twofold. It's both unitive and procreative. To misunderstand marriage, like outside of the church, that's not really what's taught. But to have a misunderstanding of that very, very basic idea is to miss the point. That's a huge area of evangelization in the church that we need to to understand marriage as being both unitive and procreative. And it was sort of in the process of writing that book that kept it sort of on the back of my mind. I kept thinking, okay, how does that then relate to family life? Because it has to relate to family life. Our family is the fruit of this union. (laughs) And so this might sound like it's off topic. I'm hoping it will eventually come to this point. But if we look at parenting as also as the really the biggest component of marriage as being both unitive and procreative so that everything we do with our children would bring us closer to each other and closer to God because the unity in marriage and we're talking we're talking about intimacy we're talking about sexual unity but it brings us closer to each other and closer to God that we should think about our all of our interactions with our spouse are affected by that by that embracing that idea but mm-hmm. also with our children if we can think that our children every time we interact with them including discipline, including, uh, you know, homeschooling them, including the fun we have with them, all of the things, bedtime, whatever, brushing their teeth, that if that interaction can be unitive, bring us closer to each other and closer to God, and if it can be procreative, if it can produce good fruit, if it can be fruitful. So in all, all of our interactions, like that idea was like, oh, that felt like a huge idea to me to be able to wrap my brain around something I really want to explore a lot more in sort of writing and speaking that we need to look at our interactions with our children in the same way and our relationships with our children in the same way that we would think about unity and procreativity in our marital union. We need our interaction needs to be fruitful. So what, how is how I'm speaking to you, how I'm interacting with you, how I'm disagreeing with you, uh, how I'm disciplining you, how I'm homeschooling you. What is the fruit of my interaction? Have I embraced this relationship to the point where my interaction is fruitful? I think this is hard yeah. to put into play sometimes when it comes to homeschooling because we don't necessarily see relationship as priority when we're schooling. Yeah. Which and I that's think. A problem. Yeah, that's a real yeah. problem. Because if it's not like if we if we thought about our spiritual life, our relationship with God, yeah, we know for sure that the relationship is the priority. Going to church, saying our prayers, doing the novena, wearing the right clothes, you know, whatever, those are meaningless without the relationship, which comes through all of those things. It comes through how we live our life, of course. Mm-hmm. But if we're if we're doing those things and lacking the relationship, it do, they don't even make sense, right? They don't make sense. And the same thing with our spouse. We know that the most important thing with our spouse is the relationship. So we can be married, we can go on the holidays, we can drive the kids to their various you know places that they go. We can sit down and eat dinner together. We can do all the things that look like marriage, but if you take the relationship out of it, it's not a good marriage, right? It's not even Mm -hmm. a marriage, right? And I will say this, that I think that we have been, for generations, I think we've been really deeply affected by you know, I mean, in a way, the heresies of the church. So, so, and I'm going, and I have a lot of Protestant listeners, so I don't want to, I want to know that those of you who are listening to, to this as Protestants, what I'm going to say is a very Catholic theological idea. Okay. And I think that this goes, and I know that there are many wonderful, beautiful Protestant families who want to embrace a tender relationships with their children and want to have that with their children. But if theologically, if we go way back, Puritanism and the beginnings of Protestantism were also the beginnings of of that you must work for your relationship with God. In a sense, work for heaven. That it's it's about your works. 
you know, and what you do, because theologically, and I know, again, many, many Protestants would believe the Catholic ideas about this, but the roots of Protestantism are, are deeply entrenched with the idea that grace covers sin, as opposed to that we, that we are freed from our sin, right? And we have the sacraments that, that help us do that and are under so but theologically i think over the centuries the culture has been deeply affected by these ideas that sin is something you know that's we're kind of we're, we're sinful beings we're sinful beings and sin has to be kind of beaten out of us right you know and not that i'm saying you know people are beating their kids but at some point in historically that's what was happening your sinfulness has to be beaten out of you that's theologically from a Catholic perspective, it's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Sin is not something that has to be beaten out of us. We have concupiscence. Right. We have to get, we have to, we have to learn how to manage our concupiscence, but we are born good um, with the remnant of sin in us that's washed away at our baptism and concupiscence that will be the thing that attracts us to sin. But we are we are made in God's image and likeness. And we have at our disposal that which will lift sin and we have to do it over and over and over again. That's why we have confession, right? That we have to be constantly doing that. That's why we have anointing. It's why we have mass. It's all, you know, those are the things that that help us to dispatch sin from our lives without sort of continuing on a theological path, but sort of just that without, I think that basis is, is important to understand because Puritanism, no you you are covered by grace but you are a sinful human being to the point where that sexuality is sinful intimacy is sinful basically everything you do dancing is sinful drinking is sinful anything about the body is sinful that's not true it's not true but we've been really entrenched culturally uh about the ideas of of sin and that we are sinful human beings who need to have our sin beaten out of us, right? And that work ethic, that work ethic is has is deeply entrenched in our culture. And so yes. even when we talk about, you probably guys have heard me probably talk about the whole idea of sort of a carrot and stick discipline. It's mm-hmm. still working with the work ethic. It's not working with the relationship. It's not working with the person, the two people in the relationship. It's still saying, if you do this thing, I will reward you. If you do this thing, I will punish you. That is how we're going to operate. It's not relational. It's contractual. God is not contractual with us. We're shedding off, those of us who are adopting this idea of that it's not about punishment for what you've done wrong. It's about our relationship and how you could, you're still, you're doing things wrong. I'm doing things wrong. And but we need to get past that. How are we going to grow spiritually so we get past that thing? And the way we grow spiritually with our children, with ourselves, with our spouse, with God, is to get past that which holds us back from the relationship. It's a big idea. You know, it's a big idea because we were all raised, you know, I mean, culturally, I don't know what you guys had, but it was carrot and stick or just straight punishment. You do that thing, you're going to get punished. Right. As opposed to this behavior, I'm seeing this behavior in you. The behavior is wrong. What are we going to do about that? Right. We need to talk about this. I I need to know why you're behaving this way, because it affects me. It displeases me. It disrupts our family life. But ultimately, this behavior is displeasing to God. And so there's let's let's see where we can go with this let's see what we can do with this and so we have to give our kids we have to pour so much grace into them so that they can grow spiritually in the act of pouring out the grace upon them we open ourselves up to god's grace in just ways we can't even imagine right because that's what grace does i give i pour grace out onto you I assume the best of you. I love you. I am willing to. This bad behavior is is something that I I don't want to see you in right wrong relationship with God. I want to see you in right relationships with God. How are we going to do this, right? And it's a it's a point of discussion. It's a point of walking with. I want to support you in your path to holiness. That's what I want. Is that helping? Is <laughs> it? That's really good. I, I, we, it's hard for me to like think about that in terms of a two, five, and a seven year old. How do I do that? And that's the easiest time to start. You have, when you're saying this, it sounds like you're assuming that 
they've already got this relationship with God well established and you know you can communicate that to them and it means to them whereas my five-year-old I communicate that to her and she's probably you communicate it to them by your actions towards them for example you have, maybe you have a seven-year-old who's going through a really sassy time and they're, you know, mouthing you off and, you know, whatever they can, or they're correcting you or they're, you know, whatever they're, they're going through their little, you know, phases. Um, that if say they sass you, your go-to is it's, I mean, cause to, to be in right relationship with you, to be in good relationship with them, you know, you always, in a sense, you, you're, you're the kind of the father figure, the God figure to them when they're very young, right? That's how we expose them to God. And they slowly grab the idea of a loving God through a loving parent. That's, you know, that's what happens. But if they say, for example, you, they're, they're sassing you and you say, don't you talk to me like that. If you can picture God saying that to us. Okay. That's one way that we can kind of pause to think, okay, how, how would, how would how would my spouse, that was how it started for me. How would my spouse, if I said something rude to my spouse, because I was in a bad mood or he bugged me or whatever, would he say, don't you talk to me like that? Right. He might, but it's not going to be dignified for either (laughs) of us. But if he said, you know, I can hear in your voice, you're really frustrated. Do you want to talk or do you need a bit of time to yourself? That's a completely different, that's a game changer, right? Same with my child. If they are sassy, and I get down to their level and I look them in the eye and I say, that was kind of sassy. Are you feeling frustrated right now? Do you need a snuggle? Or it sounds to me like maybe you're a bit edgy. Do you want a snack? I love you. And I know you don't want to talk to me like that. And they might huff off, you know, or, you know, and they might just, you know, huff and go away, but they might also crumple into your arms in tears, right? I'm sorry, mommy. You know, I shouldn't have talked to you like that. I need a snack or, or whatever. I don't know what the problem is. Lots of them, they don't know. Little kids don't know, right? Yeah. We are guiding them, but we're guiding them in a very deep sense of love and tenderness, right? The same way that we would expect from our spouse, the same way that God guides us, right? It's all out there. We just have to ask, right? But he's not harsh with us. He doesn't say, if you do this, this is going to happen. And ultimately, you know, we're choosing if if we reject God, reject God, reject God, reject what he wants of us, reject what he expects of us. Ultimately, you know, we're going to end up in hell, but we choose it. He doesn't say you're going to hell, you know, regardless of what the, you know, the uh, uh, catechisms in the you know 1900s told us, you know, that that, that God was going to, you know, throw us into hell, right? No, that's not, that's not the way it works, right? So there's a, there's a really strong sort of theological component to relationship that we have been divorced from for a very long time. And I think in a sense, like I, I look at my, my husband's family, who was all Catholic. Now, his family was much more likely, they didn't punish, really, they didn't really punish in their households. They were more likely to just say, ah, oh, that's kids, you know, and they're, they're all huge families. And they're all, you know, kids were everywhere all the time. And, and they were very relaxed about children. Now, I think to the point where they weren't offering guidance when it was necessary. But it was, a, I think, in a sense, a much better place than sort of that, that butting heads with your kids all the time because you're trying to make them behave a certain way as opposed to through um, sort of top-down authoritarian kind of uh, attitudes like this sort of carrot and stick idea or just punishment rather than saying, where is this coming from? In a sense, they were, you know, they were kind of well-behaved because, because their people were relaxed about their bad behavior. No, you know, they didn't get into it with them. They didn't butt heads with them. Right. And I, I think overall, like, even though my parents weren't Christian, they, that overall, they just didn't really do a lot of that with us. It was a lot. It was just kind of a dis, very much a discussion based. And, and we were, by and large, really obedient kids. Not that we never did anything wrong, but we were we knew that we weren't going to get punished, that we were just going that my parents were going to talk to us about it and say, you know, this this was I expected that if you were going to be really late, that you would uh, you would have called right and and you didn't call uh you know and then i start worrying so so we don't mind what you can be out 
whatever if we, we know you are and you, you know you, we know you have good friends so but we'd appreciate a call oh, so yeah. that we're not worrying yeah. go to oh, bed yeah. and I know you, you've got a plan or you've got a ride home or, or whatever it was just much more sort of a, a discussion oriented from the time we were small sort of much more discussion oriented is you know this is this is not behavior that's okay out in public and that means also with little kids you're debriefing them is do you remember when we talked about you know when you're out in public that you um you know you can't run around with a bare bum that's just not okay People are not okay with that. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of privacy needs to happen. So, you know, you need to keep your pants on. And, you know, if you don't put pants on, you know, maybe you're talking to a two-year-old. If you're going to take your pants on, I'm just going to put you in suspenders because in uh, in overalls because they're much harder to get off. And I might even have to safety pin them. And that's just, you know, you manage the environment however you can, right? Yeah, it's not really an option for you anymore to wear pants that you can pull off because that's not okay. You know, we're relaxed. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that helpful? I know it's sort of a mind-blowing idea. It certainly was for me. When I first came across this, it was like, oh, wow. Okay. This, you know, was kind of a mind blower, even though I had kind of grown up with that parents around me, it was all carrot and stick. Right. And I'm assuming you guys age range would sort of have been totally have encompassed the sort of carrot stick ideology. Definitely would be much more the way I was raised carrot and stick. Yeah. Was there something you would recommend that you, you said you came across this idea? Was this in something that you read? Well, I was really involved in La Leche League um, when I was young and eventually became a La Leche League leader. The way that, so the book, the very first book I read prior to becoming Catholic, the very first book I read about sort of child rearing, child bearing, was uh, The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding, the old version, before La Leche League really got hijacked, right? Because it was Catholic moms who started La Leche League. They wanted to breastfeed their babies and they didn't have support, right? So they kind of bonded together with each other and they started La Leche League, but it was very, very Catholic in its early years. It was a very Catholic organization. Everything in their library reflected that. That had a deep impact on me when I later became Catholic because a lot of the ideas I had already adopted into my life. But I read The Womanly Art. I would say it's almost more of a book about gentle parenting than it is about about breastfeeding. I mean, yeah, it has lots of breastfeeding information, but it was much more about the relationship between mother and child and how we maintain uh, and develop the foundations for relationship than it is about breastfeeding. It had a big impact on me and all the books in the library did. Some of them were overtly Catholic and some were not. Then I read Sheila Kitchens, or not Sheila Kitchens, um, Sheila, she wrote Breastfeeding and Natural Child Spacing. I know which book you're talking about, but I can't think of the author either. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. She wrote this book called Breastfeeding and Natural Child Spacing. And again, it was about child spacing and the kind of this being the the, the most natural sort of method of, of NFP, for want of a better word, spacing that we naturally get from breastfeeding and that, you know, we how how we can kind of live a life that really sort of uh, allows us to um, to raise our babies in such a way that will enhance, first of all, our our spacing between babies are, are periods of infertility but the happy accident of that no accident is the relationship we have with our babies because we're very bonded to us we're very physical with them and that's the thing that you know spaces out our our uh, cycles and our periods of infertility longer and this sort of giving of of self you know sleeping with babies you know breastfeeding on demand all you know all sort of that package right but it was the relationship that really caught my attention the health within that that was the the sort of emotional health that was fostered kind of very different attitude as opposed to being a martyr to this you know the the demands of childbearing and having a big family and breastfeeding your baby that these books presented the beauty of that side of the relationship and the naturalness of it and the and the kind of how again how divorced we have come from that and this goes back centuries that you know the divorcing of the the mother-child relationship you know a hundred more than 100 years 200 years when the most important thing was for you know royalty to have huge families and so therefore nursing your babies wasn't a good idea you you want 19 kids or whatever so those books really deeply affected me and what you want people to parcel all your land out to right <laughs> prior to that the natural spacing of children was longer and there was you know mothers carried their babies around with them and you know that was that was the way it was those had a deep impact on me in terms of raising really young children. But I saw that there was something different. And as my oldest got a little older, it was sort of like, but 
what now? Like, and so what happened in our in our area, the homeschooling, the the Lalechuli group just sort of grew up into a homeschooling group. In the next five, six, seven years down the road, the, the next Lalechuli group would kind of grow into and sort of uh, become the next layer of a homeschooling group because, but it was all very much sort of new age ideology. So we, in on the West coast, you, I, it might be different now, but at that, in that era, so this is the nineties in that era, homeschooling was very much everywhere else, a, a Christian movement on the West coast. And I'm talking about the whole West coast, Vancouver Island, BC, California, Washington, Oregon, all those States. It was pretty much split half and half kind of new age and Christians. Ideologically, I was much more like the New Age people, but I I knew that, that my understanding of, of theology was only Catholic. My understanding of the theology behind it and the theology of the relationships was this is because the New Age had some weird ideas too. Like, well, you don't say no to kids. Well, no, of course you say no to kids. That's ridiculous. Kids are kind of, um, and the whole, the whole sort of unschooling ideology and kind of unparenting like we just let them you know do whatever they want and we never say no and you know that was it was kind of weird it was sort of dealing with these christian ideas and yet more drawn to this sort of tender parenting that was laid out for me in these very very catholic books then i came across a um a psychologist who has written a book called hold on to your kids and his ideas are based on psychologists from a hundred years earlier and very much about the relationship between mother and child and how the, the impact that that has on, on us and kind of the disciplinary mes- methods that have come along in the last, you know, hundred years. Anyway, he kind of explores this idea. So the, the book is called hold on to your, to your kids and it's written by, um, it's gone. I'll put it in the show notes. Foundational book. It's not Christian. It's a secular book, but it, it's the most Christ-like book in terms of relationship with our children I have ever read to this day. And that's why I wrote Revolution of Mercy, because I wanted to close the gap between everything he was saying and the, the standpoint from a Catholic perspective of why we need to pay attention to this. And why this is theologically um, sound, not that my book's theological, but it's more, it's more just practical. I, it's ideological that we're, we're, we're really missing something. And we're, you know, in some sense, behaving in a very sort of old Protestant manner because we've been deeply affected by that. So I'm going to have, I'm going to be timing out here in a few more minutes. Was there any more questions? Cause um, this is going to be a long episode. Was there any other questions that we can address in the next five or six minutes? Sorry to go off on that tangent. I just felt it was important. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, it was the whole, our dad um, was a convert to the Catholic faith also. And so he converted when I was 15 and he was Lutheran. And so that idea of Martin Luther, I think we're we're a pile of dung and we're covered with snow, you know, like I was familiar with that, that mindset. And it is interesting. uh, I was talking with my husband too, because one of my kids was reading Chaucer and and this, that, that Puritanism that came over on the Mayflower that really established so much in the founding fathers and the beginning of the country and how that, that, you know, the body is bad and, and all of that, that, and how, the, how ingrained that is without thinking about it until you take a step back. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the problem is that it's really in our brains in our culture you know i mean in our dna like generations and generations have been operating that way and i think most humans suffer from this idea of seeing themselves as bad right Mm -hmm. we look at ourselves as flawed which we are i mean there's you know theologically we are we are flawed we won't be perfect until we get to heaven but we fail to see our own goodness and I think that that's even one of the reasons why we're triggered so much by our kids right because we're failing to see our own innate goodness and likeness of God and the way he created us because we are amazing and we don't see ourselves that way. Right. I just, um, in reading a book called be transformed by Bob Schutz. I've heard so much about him. I'm going to have to read him. I've heard, I've heard so many things about him. Uh, He said that our whole, you know, attitude, like how, you know, like the sacraments, like you go to Holy Community, you go to Mass, and you think this, I should be transformed. Like, I know there's lots of grace here. I should be a different person because I I received Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, but it's basically based upon what you just said, that the idea of do we believe or do we know it? We know it, right? We've heard it said, we are God's beloved. But do we really believe that? Because yeah. everything else is kind of based on 
that, accepting that, knowing that, making that, internalizing that maybe, which, yeah, made me, certainly made me pause and think, do we start from there? I am God's beloved. I am God's beloved. And you know, it brings us full circle to that whole idea of abandonment, right? That, that if God says he loves me and I am made his image and likeness, I have to abandon myself to that idea in order to pursue a life in holiness. And, you know, we do it in stages, of course, but we would hope that with our children and our relationships with them, whatever they go through, that that we give them as much as we can, and it will be imperfect, but will we give them as much as we can in that understanding of that they are made in the image and likeness of God and they are his beloved. Probably have time for one more question if we're really fast. Margaret, have you got enough to think about? (laughs) Um, What was my question? Oh, I just had written down way back at the beginning when you talked about joy being kind of the opposite of angst. Um, I just had written down that. I was wondering what practical advice you have for combating that angst in the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you say, just let go. How do you, yeah. how do you let go? Yeah. And it's different for everybody. But I mean, for me, sometimes it's reading. We, for years, I did the practice of the three Hail Marys. It's a, it was actually a, it's a, like a little, um, a spiritual practice where you, you pray three Hail Marys and then you respond to whatever is in front of you. I did an episode on resilience that, that might be really, really helpful. It was within the last year or six months for sure. Um, but it was one that I kind of addressed that in a much deeper way, um, sort of resilience against, you know, that we are brittle and we crack really easily. And if we can, if we can create more resilience in ourselves, we're less likely to snap in those moments, right? And so I think, you know, resilience is one of the ways. And, and I think there are in natural propensities to, to resilience, but there are, I think there are many things we can do to build our own resilience. In that episode, I believe it's that one I talk about. I'm so bad with names. Have you guys heard of Madonna House? It's a Catholic retreat center. It's in Canada. There's one in Canada. There's another one in Europe. The woman, she was a, I can't remember where she was from, Poland or something. She moved to Canada and she began this work. She's, she's um, a cause. There is a cause for her canonization. She was quite an incredible lady. She started this Madonna house. And the idea of Madonna house was um, to just for spiritual rest and, and formation. But she said, you know, your, your task is whatever's in front of you absolutely whatever's in front of you and so we address that more i'm going to have to go because i've only got a minute left but but that would be a good episode to sort of really delve into that idea more what do i do instead so i better say uh say goodbye i'm gonna have to stop my recording because it's going to end on me so i'm going to see you stopping the recording thank you all ladies so much your questions are beautiful absolutely fantastic 